All right, listen up. There's only one target of interest in this sector. Camino. It's the closest thing we clones have to a home. And today we fight for more than the Republic. Today we fight for all our brothers back home. Understood? So, yes, sir! There's over 150 hours of Star Wars on film. This is the Star Wars Binge, where we select, order, and elevate the best 40 hours of the Star Wars canon. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and in Chicago, Illinois, is the Daniel Mothershed, playwright, comedian, and pop culture enthusiast. How's it going? I'm doing good. We are tackling another early episode of the Clone Wars, getting us into the binge here. Uh, We are on season one, episode five. This episode is called Rookies. This is a commonly referenced fan favorite early episode. Second episode in the Domino Squad arc. Just a bunch of soldiers, man, in a base in the middle of nowhere. Which always works out well. (laughs) There's movies and shows that kind of have this premise of the folks who are just out beyond civilization. Uh, you got any favorite movies with that setup? The the army guy that's like manning the post and he looks around and it's just him. I thought I thought of kind of the obvious ones like it's it, it doesn't technically count, but I thought of the movie Alien. Oh, I didn't think about science uh, fiction. Yeah, yeah, ju- like just in terms because there is a sort of militaristic aspect mm-hmm. to it of of these people who are sent. Just this few group of people are sent on the um, isn't that ship called the Nostromo? And I, I I saw Alien once. It terrified me so bad I didn't watch it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I know it's 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 truly a terrifying film. But uh, like it kind of makes me think of that a little bit, just in the sense that isolation feeling yeah. of you are the only people out there. You are meant to be taking care of this thing. It feels safe, but also, what was that that just ran past that door? True. I, of all things, I watched The Abyss last night with uh, with my wife, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, nobody else is around. You, you got to yeah. man this base. It, it, it also kind of made me think of Dunkirk a little bit, the film version. Oh, yeah, yeah. It just, just in the sense of like, it, it is very few folks who are essentially stationed out in the open yep. in a setting that almost invites people to try and attack them. Yeah. Like you're just out in it and there is nowhere to go and you just have to wait. Yep. My favorite war film is Master and Commander. Which feels like this. It's your you're on a naval vessel mm. on the far, you know, the far side of the world. There's a lot of movies where discovering yourself takes place not when you're in the city, but when you are out in the wilderness. You have to go out into the desert. Lots of biblical imagery of the 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 man or per, the person who has to venture off by themselves to find themselves. And not necessarily true of any one individual here, but we are picking up with Domino Squad, and so maybe it could be true, you know, of this set of characters. It's that hero's journey trope of you have to leave where you're from and either go to a specific place for a specific thing or leave where you're from and wander the earth in the same sense as Kung Fu, the, the I want to say Keith Carradine, which is what The Mandalorian is. I realized that last week. I, was, I, I, thought, I thought to myself, what, what is The Mandalorian? It's a mm-hmm. Western, it's a whatever. It's it's the it's the series Kung Fu. It's Kung Fu. I had a man with no name. Oh, it's uh, Mad Max came to mind with the Mandalorian and the man with no name. 
Same kind of trope where he has something he wants to accomplish, something he wants to do, but he stumbles into a village and, and they're like, hey, can you help us? And he becomes part of the thing. I hadn't put that together. And Mad Max doesn't tell his name in that in that latest movie. He doesn't tell uh, Furiosa his name till the very end. So she's like bleeding out. You know, I loved that. I, I think I actually only saw that once. I really, really enjoyed it. But for whatever reason, I was like, I think that's enough. I listened to that score from that movie constantly. Just love it. Yeah. Just love it. Um, last time we discussed Ambush. Season 1, Episode 1, and we introduced Yoda, and in that episode, we saw the creators of the Clone Wars unleash the galaxy's most powerful Jedi on some unsuspecting droids. Lots of Jedi action. But in this, our ninth episode of The Binge, we are going to see no Jedi powers unleashed. Instead, we're going to see some elite clones alongside some rookies, hence the name, defending a very important base on the edge of space. So, you want to get into this? Let's do it. Proverb this time is the best confidence builder is experience. Going to talk about some shinies. I loved that term for <laughs> for their for their armor. I, I thought what a what a what a really nice like cuz like it could go derogatory but could be okay kind of nickname that yeah. you know, we we talked about nicknames in, in an episode too. It's like oh yeah, the shinies. That feels tells you everything you need to know. It's not overly condescending. It's just saying, hey, man, you haven't been where I've been. One of the things, I didn't mention this, I don't think, when we did uh, Clone Cadets, I have had such a difficult time figuring out which clone is which when drafting the script because all of their armor is the same. And yet, when we get further into these, the further and further in you get, I'm like, oh, no, that's Rex, and that's Cody, and I know exactly what they look like. Oh, see that that gives me hope because <laughs> that was one of the things I was remarking on to myself as I began to watch this. I was like, uh-huh. "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Which one of them is that? I don't know. Uh, Australian voice guy? Okay, yeah. I remember him. <laughs> but that that's that's the one I recognize because it's the one that's like wildly different from all the rest of them. And it gets better as we as we as we go. It's that's I don't think that becomes a, as much of an issue. So the narrator is gonna set us up. Says, "Clone forces rally." As the war escalates in the Outer Rim, the Jedi Knights are spread thinly across the galaxy. Many new clones are rushed into service to support their Jedi generals. Unfortunately, because of the relentless demands of battle, many young clones must join the struggle before their intensive training has been completed. These clones, manning a vital network of tracking stations, are all that stand between the Republic and invasion. And we're seeing images of Undali and Yoda and the birthing of the clones on Kamino. Anything that stands out to you here? Yes. I really responded to the line about regardless of readiness or preparedness, they're getting thrust into battle. And I had two specific thoughts on that. Coming out of a performing arts theater background, I related very much <laughs> to the idea of, of there are very often times where it's like, all right, man, we, we started out to do this thing, but yet here we are. So we just we have to go out and do it regardless of whether or not you're ready. I think that's a... I think there's something kind of beautiful to that idea that you can try to prepare as much as you want, but nothing is going to replace the the learning and the experience, like the proverb at the beginning of this episode says, of just doing the thing. Yeah. 
uh, on the flip side, to be much more dark, just knowing the time that this series was being written and created, the notion of shipping people off to war without the supplies and equipment that they need to survive kind of struck me as like, oh, yeah, that was happening a lot, uh, and we do that a lot. Yep. There's a scene in Platoon that's kind of like this where uh, Behringer is talking to guy the guy who plays green goblin oh um, i i cannot for the life of me remember the character name but i can tell you that the actor's name is willem defoe yeah defoe there's a scene in platoon where behringer and is talking and a couple of his shinies get killed on the first night out and defoe comes up to him and kind of shakes his head and said man it'd be alive if you had a few more days to learn something and that, that kind of came out to me here this being rushed into military service now we did clone cadets that didn't necessarily feel like it was rushed but maybe they're telling us something here it's like they're doing just enough to get these guys a graduation medal and shipped off yeah i suppose i could see that you've you were able to capture the flag once good to go we'll stamp you move you on <laughs> it's always going to be you know more or less like this so yeah i mean just kind of <laughs> adapt remember we talked about adapting that's why We've seen the numbers <laughs> that the the droids outnumber the clones uh, 100 to 1. There's 100 million droids apparently that are out there, and there's just a, they're trying to catch up with a million clones. And apparently this base has uh, a handful of them. It's important, but it's not one of those battlefronts because apparently it's quite boring, right? Or so we think. They, they emphasize it a couple of times with the... Uh, the intro here, there's a clone that's out on, on a deck kind of looking at the night sky. This is CT-327. He says, This is the deck officer checking in. Nothing going on, as usual. Fun fact here about 327. This is one of those numbers that pops up in Star Wars all the time. 327 is the deck that uh, the Millennium Falcon is pulled into on the Death Star in New Hope. And oh, yeah. the landing platform 327 is the spot the Falcon lands on in Cloud City. And here we are again with a 327 on a deck. I, wow, that's that's I thought that was fun. Good eyes. I didn't even I didn't even notice that. The interweb is fantastic for this. <laughs> oh. What is what is this number? Star Wars 327. <laughs> oh, okay. Apparently it's in reference to a to an engine that George Lucas worked on. And say through, you know, he's apparently he's a number guy because he's they're all over the place. He threw yeah. it in here. Oh, that's super interesting. So we go inside the small base, and in the control room, we hear military radio, and we see the hologram of a VJ droid saying, "You're listening to the Grand Army of the Republic broadcast, the voice of the Outer Rim." It's <laughs> so authentic to me. Good world building here. Yes. This next one goes out to the mutt jumpers of the 224th. Slugging it out on Minbum. Keep your heads down and your seals tight, boys. Everybody listens to the radio or some form of, of DJing equivalent like that. So so to include that in this is just so smart. It, yeah. it makes it feel fully realized. One of the things I noticed while you're watching it, it's not just the radio, but in the background there's a pinup on the wall. And it's real small. But it, feel, it feels lived in. The the yeah. base feels lived in. So this is uh, an introduction to the attendant droids, who we're going to see a few times. These are the female-looking droids. They're high-end secretaries in the Republic. 
in here, of course, this is what? It, it's uh, Good Morning Vietnam. It's Armed Force Radio Service. Is that what that is called? Yeah, well, it's the Armed Forces uh, Radio Service, but but I also feel like Good Morning Vietnam, you get a lot more of the administrative side of, of war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is this base, but there's predominantly a lot of patrolling and paperwork happening. We see two clones arm wrestling in the control room because they bored. And Echo says, Shouldn't you be watching your scope, Heavy? So here's the rule stickler again. Heavy says, Yeah, let's take a look. Hmm, what do you know? All clear. Just like the last hundred times I looked at it. Personally, I like that it's so quiet out here. I can catch up on the rig manuals. Echo, what is wrong with you? We should be out in the front lines blasting droids. Ah, leave him alone. They kept him in his growth jar too long. Yeah. (laughs) You, uh, may not realize it yet, Fives, but you landed on the most boring post in the Outer Rim. So, a little foreshadowing here. I was going to say, never. I feel like the cardinal rule of anything is never (laughs) be like, look how how little to do there is here. (laughs) Everything's fine. Rule two is don't make fun of the guy who keeps saying we need to follow the regulations. There's got to be the right way to do this. (laughs) Shut up. Both these might come back to bite you. These are the clones from uh, Domino Squad, who we met in Clone Cadets, and they have graduated. They're stationed. They're, they are well away from uh, all the other planetary battles that we've seen. Heavy says, you may not realize it yet, Fives, but you landed on the most boring post in the Outer Rim. And then the sergeant walks in. One of the most important. Attention, sergeant on deck. At ease. Even though you're all new here, I shouldn't have to remind you that this quadrant is key to the Outer Rim. If the droids get past this station, they can surprise attack the facilities where we were born on our homeworld of Kamino. There's some officers on the way, so I want everything squared away for inspection. Understood? Sir, yes, sir! Of course it is. This clone is Sergeant O'Niner, because apparently he's Irish. <laughs> don't, don't let the... Uh, New Zealand accent fool ya. <laughs> right. They're from everywhere. We got 99 and 09er. This guy's early because he's already going gray on uh, on his sideburns there. Looks a little, little looks a little uh, older than, than the sprightly shinies. Yeah, distinguished. Our binge spent some time on Camino two episodes ago when we covered clone cadets, and Camino is, of course, the planet where all the clones are created and trained, and it's worth noting the geography here so just uh fun stuff here with actually with time and place uh this base is called the rishi moon outpost and you mentioned it with aliens but did you ever see the thing these are in the middle of the antarctic aren't they yeah yeah, nothing happens out there nothing happens (laughs) out there (laughs) it's that cold dark outpost when suddenly the alien shows up the the droids show up i mean the right do you know this is totally a tangent, and but I'm going to say it anyways. With with the thing, there is a there is a, a prehistoric lake in Russia, I believe called Lake Vostok that that has been mm. discovered, and it's it's been it's been frozen over for so many thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and people keep mounting expeditions to like find out what's down there, and I just keep <laughs> thinking, no, don't do that. <laughs> like, haven't you seen the thing? I haven't, and even I know you shouldn't do that. They unfroze something recently. I can't remember what it was. It was like a worm, and it came back alive. It had been frozen oh, for yes, thirty thousand I... years. Was it a fish or a worm? No, I think it was, it was a worm. I, I I remembered seeing that story, yeah. and again, just remember thinking to myself, like, 
What? What are you doing? Oh, come on. Do you know what year it is? Right. Right. It's like that that meme that goes around recently where it's like, we've discovered all these uh, Egyptian sarcophagi, and people are like, shut that lid, man. <laughs> the Rishi Moon outpost is all riddled with meteorite damage, and it routinely looks like it's a dark place. It's uh, I don't know that they show the sun. It, it feels like it's just dark the whole time, yeah? I, no, yeah, I assumed it was night. But it could be just I, I, every every time we see it, it's it's at night. But but uh, but yeah, it could just be a very dark planet. Sergeant says that rightly, this is the base that protects Camino, which is beyond the galaxy. Uh, we talked about this before. Camino is extra galactic, according to one Star Wars atlas. <laughs> I like that term. It's not galactic. It's extra galactic. Super space. Um, anytime we hear the the phrase the outer rim i think you should get in your mind this is the wild west mm-hmm. and uh geographically important here i read this rishi is a planet of religious idealists but the planet itself is more of a restocking refueling point so in my mind i was like oh they made salt lake city in the star wars universe kind of you know it's they it's a it's a it's a it's a planet in which folks who who want their their freedoms all go to um but it becomes important because it's it's a way station and of course this is the moon so we might imagine this little military base off of the main planet and heavy is responsible for monitoring all of the extra galactic activity out there as it relates to camino (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, he better because he's got nothing else to do. I just thought I thought that was fun. I'm trying. I'm still trying to get my head around the geography. The all the maps yeah. for Star Wars geography are, man, they're complicated. There, there needs to be the Game of Thrones equivalent. Yes, for for the layout of where things are in in Star Wars, which which maybe would be more difficult. But there needs to be something like that. I bet we could pay those guys. Hey, just do an animation for us to, to start us out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Sorry, we'll start a GoFundMe now. Right. The, the, it's in, in a recent episode of Mandalorian, this happened when right. Ahsoka is named and one of the characters says where she is. And you're like, okay, so yeah, so it's, it's another planet out there. <laughs> Which is, that was exactly my reaction when, when, when Bo-Katan tell, tells him. Take the foundling to the city of Kaladin on the forest planet of Corvus. There you will find Ahsoka Tano. Tell her you were sent by Bo-Katan. And thank you. Your bravery will not be forgotten. I was like, yeah, oh yeah, we just gotta go out. Uh, we just gotta go out there. They say <laughs> but, it in the same way as like the gas station down the street, where somebody's like, oh shoot, I forgot the whatever. <laughs> oh, just run down to the Seven Eleven. They just don't mention that the Seven Eleven is in extra space in the outer rim. <laughs> That's right. I suppose if you can go, what is it? It's not warp speed. Ludicrous speed. <laughs> that was what I was looking for. <laughs> Never gone that fast before. Okay. <laughs> so then we cut over to Obi-Wan and Anakin on a Star Destroyer. And Obi-Wan says, Still here, Anakin? When was the last time you slept? I'll sleep after we find General Grievous. Clone intelligence spotted him in the Balmora system. Which also is by the 7-Eleven. That was weeks ago. Since then, he vanished. Well, unlike you... Maybe he's getting some much-needed rest. We haven't gotten to see this in the binge yet, but there's lots of buddy cop imagery in the Clone Wars with Kenobi and Skywalker. Um, They have commonly kind of a detective function in some of the plots. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. And here they got to track down an enemy, one General Grievous, who we'll, we'll talk about here in a minute. But on the buddy cop side, are there any pairings of cops that these two characters remind you of? Yes, specifically with the episodes I've seen so far of this with, with Anakin and, and Obi-Wan in them, it always feels like there's this by-the-book yet passive-aggressive antagonism with, with Obi-Wan Kenobi, where it's like, well, unlike some people, yep. we know how to do this. And it reminds me of um, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost's characters in Hot Fuzz. Oh, sure. Where where Simon Pegg is just this militant by the book and kind of passive-aggressively irritated by everything Nick Frost's character does. And, and his character is like, have you ever just shot off a bunch of guns and like leapt through the air and done whatever? He's like, no, why would we do that? I'm like, you know, <laughs> unlike you, I'm going to follow the rules. He's like, yeah, but it would be cool if we, if we jumped through the air firing our weapons. The pairing that hit me, which is a very different kind of film, is Seven. That oh, yeah. the Morgan Freeman character is is more... Uh, experienced and is is there to get the job done right. And then Brad Pitt is just kind of loose. He's new, but very emotional. Mm. And that struck me as kind of the, the the energy taking place in these two at times. Not quite the dark uh, themes going on, but... Yeah, ooh, that's... But they're nonetheless. It's such a heavy movie. <laughs> What's in the box? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You just can't say that. Actually, that's not okay. You can't say that because it will. Be, it brings up trauma. Did you? I bet you saw that like when you were in middle school for the first time, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like it was just, I knew ahead of time. Like I, I had, yeah. I had, I had looked up the movie. So it was. So it was. It was like, oh, oh, okay. This is the moment with the. Um, I don't know. I'm trying not to spoil it. That's an old movie. If you haven't seen it, you're not gonna. There's a head in the box. That's what's in the box. <laughs> a lady's head. <sighs> it's horrible. On my other podcast, we did a deep dive into uh, John Doe, and man, like uh, in talking about like character motives and what is exposed in the dialogue and that movie's just, that's some stuff. <laughs> uh, loosely related to the film seven on, uh, on James Corden's show on the late, late show. He, he has a reoccurring segment where they take films and turn them in. It, the segment is called inappropriate musicals. <laughs> okay. And they'll usually do two or three really short sketches. And, and one of the ones they did was seven and it was Nathan Lane playing Kevin Spacey's character and uh, uh, them, them singing over and over again, what's in the box, and, and him singing back like, detective, I'm jealous because you've got it all. They're like, then they open the box and, and uh, there, there's an actress singing as Gwyneth Paltrow's head, I'm in the box, over and over again. It's it, hilarious, but really inappropriate. It's, it's always look on the bright side of life yeah, exactly. going on there. <laughs> Too much. Yeah. That's She's right like moving, kind of move, bobbing back and forth. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> Very inappropriate. Admiral Yularen comes over, who we met in uh, landing at Point Rain. He says, Excuse me, General. Incoming transmission from Commander Cody. General Kenobi, General Skywalker. Cody, how goes the inspections? The tracking station in Pastille is fully operational. Captain Rex and I are proceeding to the outpost in the Rishi system. Good. Report back once you've arrived. Copy that. Cody out. These two second in commands are doing inspections because you need to get your heroes in the right place for conflict. But this is this should not be two <laughs> two second in commands jobs. They oversee sixty thousand soldiers. 
Where are they going to do it at the Rishi Outpost? Yeah. They sign out. Obi-Wan says, Good man, that Cody. Don't worry, Anakin. If General Grievous comes anywhere near this quadrant, we'll know about it. First, Anakin does nothing but worry. <laughs> this is his entire character through all of Star Wars. In fact, this is his downfall. You know what? If Anakin would just listen to Kenobi just here, everything would be fine. <laughs> Could have saved a whole lot of time. And some younglings. <laughs> and two, this might get overplayed uh, in the Clone Wars, but here it's okay because this is probably the first time in the Clone Wars where Obi-Wan's going to say, that, that Cody's a good guy. Because as we know, Cody's going to turn on him and, and he, Cody will be the one who tries to kill Obi-Wan in Order 66. A little foreshadowing here for us. Yeah. Cut back to the Rishi outpost. Clones see an incoming meteor shower, but of course it's a Trojan horse, and there are there's like a spaceship in it called the Drop Pod among the meteors, and it's carrying a platoon of commando droids. Lots of similar imagery here to the beginning of Empire Strikes Back, it seemed to me. And these commando droids look like our other battle droids, but they are much more aggressive and a lot more scary, I found. Yes, I also like just just to backtrack the the idea that it looks like a meteor shower or there's a meteor shower happening and then the, this enemy shows up. I really like the the notion that something that seems like just a naturally occurring um, or just a or sort of a nature phenomenon mm-hmm. would end up yielding something so dangerous and but it's so unsuspecting. Yeah, kind of like it made me think of only very loosely like the film The Birds. Just in the sense of like, mm. oh, this is just nature and so normal. Who you know? And then all of a sudden, like, oh, that's like, a good one. Things we never pay attention to. Of all things, Arnold Schwarzenegger movies kept coming to mind while I was watching this, and this is kind of a Predator image. Predator has there's a similar scene where the, you see the what looks to be a meteor streak across the sky. Aren't they? Isn't that a similar plot for Predator? Aren't they out in a military? I haven't seen Predator oh, in yeah. a really long time, but aren't they? Yeah, they're. They are doing some sort of job in South America. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a good call. Like, here's your here's your squad of troops. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And then you let the monsters out. Monsters who can also communicate and hunt them and, and are intelligent. Yeah. In the making of this episode, one of the artists described the move from the normal battle droids to these guys as the move from revolutionary soldiers to guerrilla fighters. Yeah. Same kind of design, but they were like, well, what would it look like if we made them more and they're more commando? Better. Like It's literally yeah. <laughs> what I thought when I watched the episode. I thought to myself, why do they even have the other ones? So Filoni talks about this in the making of, and he says, so twofold. One, a lot of the early battle droids are manufactured for other reasons. They're transport droids. They are the machines that are just scary enough to be an obstacle to pirates. And so they had been around. And so that's kind of why they're kind of loose, kind of funny, and they're not kill, kill, kill kind of personalities. Oh. But then you grab this design and you're like, we need to mass manufacture these and and put them in, in rows. And then the second thing Filoni said, and you could tell he had gotten this question a handful of times, you know, from Star Wars fan number 527. You mean 327? 327. I got the number wrong. <laughs> the answer was, well, just like any technology, the the ones that are more complex and can do more are probably a lot more expensive. <laughs> and, and, uh. <laughs> 
He 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 did make the point that these commando droids are able to take out the uh, base, but they get defeated, and then the old battle droids show up, and they actually do take over the base. So apparently, the old battle droids have at least some skill. Ooh, that was <laughs> I thought that was a real clever way out of this problem. But there's here's here's the thing with these that as he was talking the image that came to my mind was if you have an individual zombie, you can probably take it down because you're clever and you know how to attack a single one. But if you have 80 zombies, that's much more difficult. Yeah. There's so much blaster fire coming at you. Yeah. Have you ever played those video games where you have 80, you know, those old video games where like 80 creatures would come at you at once and you're like firing at everything. (laughs) But it's gradual. Like it's four at first and you kill those and you're like, oh yeah. And then all of a sudden the rest of them show up and you're like, well, who had the controller next? (laughs) I think that's the battle droid logic for over just overwhelming numbers. The regular battle droids are shuffling uh, easy to kill zombies, but then these other battle droids are like the 28 days later zombies yes. where you're like, oh, they can run up walls. Right. <laughs> so they do. They sneak up to the base. These commando droids electrocute deck officer through 27. They cut alarm wires that would notify others far away, and they begin opening the doors to the base. Some of them are carrying swords, which makes them... That's the thing that got me. It's their color. Kind of their posture, the sound effect there. And then they have these battle swords hanging off their backs. Yeah. When they're breaking into the base, they reminded me of those scenes in Terminator of the dystopian future when the humans have a base and the Terminators are, you know, are seeking to break in. It had that kind of energy feel to it to me. Yeah. Sergeant gets on the radio. CT-327, report in. Sentry, do you copy? In a fence from the medias? I don't see him down there, Sarge. You two, go find him. The sergeant then sends two clones to find the deck officer. And Wikipedia, which is a fantastic website that's got all sorts of fun stuff on it, points out that uh, the two clones that go down are named Nub and the other we've met before. It is part of Domino Squad, and his name is Droidbait. Mm-hmm. So Nub and Droidbait go down. Uh, they are the two soldiers. They approach the outer doors. They see those 10 commando droids. They're breaking in, and there's the sound of laser fire, and all the clones in the control room are shocked. They get up. The sergeant runs down first, battle-hardened. He runs immediately. The other ones are are a little nervous. They don't quite jump up as quickly. And then we see the dead bodies of nubs and droid bait. Poor nubs, we hardly knew ye. Sergeant O'Niner is down there, and he's firing, and he yells back. Get a message to the fleet. We have the war And he's promptly shot in the back. Ah, and so now with the remaining clones at the top of the stairs, they see all of this, three dead clone soldiers, and they watch as the commando droids come over. It's a great shot. They're, like, towering over Sergeant O'Niner, and they shoot him in the head. But it's a, another just good, scary cartoon image there. I don't really feel like we see that a lot in Star Wars. Some of the battle imagery in mm-hmm. this episode feels feels very militant mm-hmm. and very kind of like you said, kind of scary. Yeah, the, the notion that they would march up on this guy and shoot him in the head—that's that's pretty hardcore. Yeah, I don't feel like, especially for the Star Wars thing that's supposed to be the kid show. Yep. I think there's some really dark, wonderful things happening. Yeah, legit execution here. There's a scene later in the show where one of the characters decapitates an enemy and then uses his head to to open a door. 
Now it's played for comedy, but but also but that's a <laughs> if that was like an actual if that was even an alien it might it might not quite go over as well. So that's a move right out of the Vlad the Impaler handbook, right? The image in the Siege of Mandalore where Maul pulls one of the clones towards one of those doors as the door is closing and it severs the guy's arm so that he can pick up the arm and now he has a radio because the radio was on the clone's wrist. Oh. Just love that scene. It just, it's, it's so graphic and it's so brutal and it's so clever. Yeah, because it shows like two things, like very, very resourceful, but also just disregard for human yes. life. Like just utter disregard for human life. Here is... An important point in many fictional stories, and you and I have already talked about this a couple times, and I imagine we will in the future, but Star Wars uses this frequently, where the wise old man dies, leaving the young ones to fight on their own. And mm -hmm. that trope just gets played and played and played. It always works, <laughs> you know? The coach is dead. What do we do? Yeah, we, yeah you got to go play this one. Yeah, and that's what takes place here. These new clones flee from the violence. Um, they can't hold down the command room, so they go into one of the hallways, and there's a vent, and they open the vent, and, they, and they, they crawl into it, and it takes them outside. The droids come up, take over the command center. One says, Four clones escaped, Captain. They don't matter. Hardwire the all-clear signal and contact General Grievous. So the four remaining clones are going to clearly be those four clones that we've already met because Domino Squad has been stationed here. So this is Heavy, Echo, Fives, and Cut-Up. And they're the only ones remaining. I like the moment where the battle droids, where the battle droids learn that they've escaped and they say that they don't matter. I feel like that highlights the fundamental difference mm. where clearly Yoda tells these people that they matter to the group. They're only four people, but they still really matter. And it mm. feels like the consistent mistake is to be like, boy, these four plucky kids got away. Yeah. Who cares? They're losers. N like, that's never the case. Misunderestimating people is the fundamental flaw of, of massive villains. Yep. Myopic Sauron can't see the hobbits. Yeah. We cut to a hologram communication on Grievous's ship. The outpost is secure, General. We shut down the alarm and turned on the all-clear signal. Excellent! Keep that signal alive! I don't want the Republic to find out we're coming! This is the first time we see and meet General Grievous in the bench. He's in a couple of episodes earlier if you do the entire Clone Wars, but for us, this is new. He doesn't appear in episode one or two, so this is going to be a character we'll spend some time on here in a second. The droid says, General, our spy on Camino is making contact. And then we see Ventress in a hologram. Apparently this is the spy. She says, All the preparations for your invasion are in order. Good. Our fleet is approaching the system. We are almost at the rendezvous point. Very good, my lord. I will await your arrival. The destruction of Camino will stop their production of clones for good. So again, we know kind of who Ventress is from the last episode. And here she's working as a spy. Any thoughts on this scene? The first thing I thought was, well, clearly she didn't take Yoda's warning from earlier of, of like, you've got a lot to learn. Maybe you could turn things around. Like she clearly yeah. didn't. Moving on. Clearly didn't take 
um, Yoda's advice. And as I am watching the binge along with our, our listeners, very much a character that I want to see more of. Yep. Every time she sort of briefly pops in there, I think to myself, she looks super cool and, and has a cool voice, and I just want to see more of this character. Good. Well, you will not be disappointed. <laughs> I've heard, yes. I, I have noticed in, in a rewatching that I've really enjoyed the voice work done here. I don't have the actress's name in front of me, but... Uh, here, give me a second. I'm going to assume Nika, N-I-K-A. Nika, Nika, Futterman. Boom. Love to. I'm sure when we do the deep dive, I'll 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 uh, I'll do some research. Oh, she voices uh, Catwoman in Batman: The Brave and the Bold. Mm. That whole world of uh, cartoon voiceover actors, I find real interesting. It's fascinating. So we see here that their plan is what everybody had kind of feared: the separatists want to attack the production facilities on Camino. This is going to be an equal opposite story to what we saw with the landing at Point Rain, where the Republic is trying to shut down, you know, the production facilities on uh, Geonosis. And here, the Separatists are trying to shut down the production in Camino. Oh, yeah. More importantly, we have our character deep dive. And in this episode, we're looking at General Grievous. You got any big thoughts on Grievous? Not not many, because he's a character that I I just don't care about. Yeah. I just... Yeah, I hear you on that. He could be so interesting. The notion that he's a living thing that's being kept alive by all this machinery. Mm -hmm. He's a Jedi hunter who collects lightsabers, except we never see him do any of that. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't spend a bunch of time being like, you're about to meet the biggest badass and then produce an ashtray and be like, isn't it cool? Yes. That's a good call. The The show creators use Grievous a lot in the first two seasons, and then they kind of move away from him, bring in other villainous characters that are more interesting to propel the, the action. There's almost a there's almost an Achilles quality to it where you, you set somebody up of being this great warrior, but just what I'm remembering from, from even the prequel films, it's like, well, you can pretty much get inside of there and... Oh, is that his? Those are his internal organs. Just, just, bla- just give those a good blast. Like it's like an Achilles heel of of all of your organs being on display. And they're apparently flammable as well. I think most organs are flammable, but yes, <laughs> I guess easier to ignite when they are exposed to the elements and electrical wiring that's all over your body. Blaster fire, in general. Yeah. Well, Grievous is a Kalish. There aren't a lot of these characters. Uh, it's a reptilian species that's got a bat-looking face and red skin. He is the supreme commander of the Separatist army, and Dooku is the head of state. So Grievous is essentially the lead military personality. Dooku is essentially the president. And since it's a confederacy, I mean, we we could quickly just say Dooku is Jefferson Davis. He's you know, overseeing all of these separatist systems and General Grievous is in essence a Robert E. Lee character, although obviously, you know, very, very different type of personality. But just to get your mind around, like has this army work on the other side. Robert E. Lee only had three lightsabers though, not four, <laughs> so you know <laughs> They're like scalps. We're gonna talk about this here in a little bit, but when you defeat an enemy and you take something from them as kind of your your trophy, your memento, this was, I beat that other guy, so you should be intimidated by me. 
Yeah, it's 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 the coolest thing about that character. It's the it's the getting a ta- you know a character getting a tattoo. These are this represents all the people that I've taken or whatever. Like it's it's yes, it's a really cool thing. That's all they are. They're just teardrop tattoos, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have thought about this, but yeah, the equal and opposite person on the Republic side to Grievous is actually Yoda. Yoda is the head of the Jedi Order, obviously, and the Jedi Council oversees the Grand Army of the Republic. And so totally the you know, if you have who are the two primary military leaders, those are the the ones. And of all things, the Grand Army of the Republic is a play on words or it's what would you call this? It's using a Civil War image as well. The military for the North is called the Grand Army of the Potomac. I didn't know that. That's so cool. There's a civil war going on in the in a galaxy far, far away, apparently. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yoda is going to govern, obviously, more democratically. It's like we're going to get a, in a big circle. What should we do, fellas and ladies? Whereas Grievous is a very abusive character throughout. Well, see, Yoda feels present in a way that Grievous does not. Yes, Yoda is in charge and he is governing, but mm-hmm. he's also going into battle with people. And for and, and it feels like a, a galactic empire thing to begin with. You scream at people from a bank of computers, whereas your Yodas or your Obi-Wans or some of these people, their, their boots on the ground or, or green scaly feet on the ground with everybody as opposed to just demanding other people carry out your orders. Yep. Democracy versus authoritarian structures. Absolutely. How hard can I hit you over and over and over again until you submit? What's the, uh, there's a line from 1984 that's something like that. It's like, uh, if you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Yeah. That is, I, I think that ends up being what the true message that Lucas wants to convey with the, the this prequel season in the when the universe story authoritarian versus democratic structures and obviously the way that the authoritarian gets into power is to over is to sneak into the head position of democracy and then undermine it which i imagine is lucas's big fear it just keeps coming up it's is the guy is the main guy in charge anti the whole democratic system in general yeah and I think just even more simply than that is, are the people in charge kind and and good? Yeah, the character of those who lead matters. It's a good thing that this is just about fiction. Okay, so now... It's <laughs> just, just a kid's show, right? <laughs> it's not trying to tell anybody anything. <laughs> the, the thing that rhymes here is clearly Grievous is like Darth Vader in that much of his body's been replaced by machinery. He's not a Force-sensitive creature. His combat skills are all technology and training. I found that interesting. So he's like, (laughs) if if you are not blessed with a high M count. (laughs) Right. You remember the first iPod? It was gigantic and broke easily, and you could fit like three songs on it versus like the iPhone 12. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Like that's, that's Grievous Invader. You can only play a thousand songs, my brother. Or it'll just make the same like sound when it plays. It's just like (laughs) there's a a clicking going on inside. Right. Yeah, exactly. As we know from uh, episode three, though, Grievous is uh, like nearly all of the separatists is going to get betrayed by Palpatine. 
Palpatine's going to unveil where the general's hiding to Kenobi, and Kenobi's going to go kill him. And that element comes up a handful of times in the Clone Wars. It's kind of interesting with the Kenobi Grievous encounters. So keep those in mind. We see Cody and Rex flying toward the planet, and they are in a Republic attack ECF shuttle. Post, this is Commander Cody. Do you copy? I love the designs of these things. Yeah. I looked this up. It's called a trihedral design where it has three wings. I remember seeing Return of the Jedi when I was a kid in that opening scene where they've done the big John Williams music. You've seen the crawl and then it gets real quiet and you just see Vader's ship coming out of one of those Star Destroyers and flying towards the new Death Star. Yeah, the the shape changing when when the ship is initially launched, it it's it's very much triangle, mm. and then the wings fold down and it flies and it makes a really sleek, cool sound, and then it folds back up. Something about that was so yep. cool to me watching that as a, a little kid. It's just elegant, and it's there's not much going on there aside from the movement of this elegant ship. Just one of, that's one of my favorite Star Wars scenes, but they, they use that, that kind of same design here. Whenever there's kind of a transport ship or a two- or three-person, that's a design they pull, pull from. Rex and Cody are descending, and they try to contact the outpost. And we see a droid dressed in the helmet of a clone. There, see again? Terminator. They're just they're dressing up in our skin, dressing up in our clothes. Sorry, Commander. We're um, experiencing technical difficulties. Because apparently this droid used to work for a TV station. <laughs> that was dumb. That was I, I wrote it down. I'm like, this isn't going to work, but I'm going to say it with sincerity. I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed. Cody says, This is the inspection team. Inspection. Negative. Negative. We uh, do not require an inspection. Everything is fine here. Thank you. We'll be the judge of that. We're all fine here. How are you? I was going to say that that it has to be intentional. Oh, the, yeah. the nods to that moment are are a plenty and it's it's such a good moment. I'm I'm here for it. It's okay. I started to notice this a lot of those rhymes that they're using, they flip them into they're putting rebel words in the mouths of, you know, the villains in the Clone Wars or they're taking the villains words in the Clone Wars. Next in the next episode this gonna, that we cover this is going to happen. Real famous line from Vader is going to get said by a Jedi at the beginning of the next episode we talk about. Oh, interesting. Anyway, I thought that was fun. Cody will be the judge of that. Prepare for our arrival. Roger, Roger. Something's not right here. Because apparently Rex has not watched The Phantom Menace yet and knows that Roger Roger is the only thing these guys say. <laughs> right. Is one of their is one of their primary colloquialisms. Yeah. The minute they did that, I, I actually really enjoyed this scene. I thought yeah. it was I thought it was very clever that the droids would think, I'll just put the helmet on. Like in the little rascals when four kids would stand on each other's shoulders <laughs> and put on a trench coat and be like, I am an adult. Like, of course that's not going to work, but you know what? God love you for trying that. I, I thought that was um, the characters created for the battle droids. I keep saying it and probably will continue to say it. I really love the choices they make for them. Yep. It's, it's so great. Cody says, Well, good luck. I'm putting you in charge of this one. Because Cody is a commander and Rex is a captain, and so Cody severely outranks Rex, but Rex is going to be kind of the primary personality here in this episode. Then we see Domino Squad, and they're moving from the vent to outside the base. (laughs) 
Clyde says. What do we do without the Sarge? Echo says. Rickman says the next. Wait, wait. Did you hear that? Yeah. What is that? It doesn't sound like droids. Heavy. Don't forget about those giant eels. Five. Giant eel comes out from behind and snatches the, the last clone in line. Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. Right. Or or even to be even more on the nose with that same film, <laughs> there are shrieking eels in, in The Princess Bride. Oh, that, right. <laughs> that they talk about them like, you don't want to get out in this water because of the shrieking eels. And then, of course, she gets in the water. It's like, look, there's those eels we were talking about. <laughs> also, not for nothing... Star Wars loves them a desert serpent. The crate dragons mm -hmm. that you see the skeleton of in Jedi that we met in, in The Mandalorian. Yep. Uh, these eels, the snake thing in, in Rise of Skywalker. Like, this this world loves itself a giant desert uh, serpent. This is true. It's a good call. As a brave man, also owned by Lucasfilm, once said, snakes, why does it have to be snakes? <laughs> They're terrifying. Works every time. It's kind of like the creature in Empire where the falcon flies into its mouth. It's huge and it's on the asteroid. That, that also the worm. has yeah. Also has that same snake-like structure. But yes, yeah, I these moon snakes. I hated that. There's there's the like antenna things on it that like uh -huh. catch on the rocks as it goes back into it, and I, that always like makes you itchy. Yeah, exactly. They yell, "Cut up!" Five says, "What the hell was that?" Well, of course, it was the eel they were just talking about. Right, remember the eels <laughs> that were foreshadowed? Yeah, so here's the line from Echo. Uh, that was an eel. And that, now that's why we have the regulation not to go outside. So, cut up. Android <laughs> bait are dead. Echo gets to say I told you so about reg manuals. Domino Squad just isn't faring well in this episode. Or you could say the Domino Squad <laughs> is falling. <laughs> They lost two characters just in time for them to gain two more, I suppose, here in a minute. But uh, killing off characters that you just set up, you gave them personality, you gave them some energy, you made them care. Cut-Up was the one who was injured and left for dead on the battlefield in Clone Cadets. Cut-Up had that experience where he was fighting with the uh, bounty hunter. Some meaningful scenes for these characters, and yet, boom, boom, they're gone. Immediately, it makes me think of Joss Whedon, who I think is maybe the most universally known in all of the things that he has has created for crafting characters you fall in love with and then taking them away from us. Mm -hmm. And usually in really upsetting, depressing, tear-inducing ways, yeah. which I really like because I feel like... You know, usually it's in in film or television where there there are wars, there are battles, there is espionage, and I feel like it makes everything real. Yeah, it creates a sense of urgency and it shows that there are stakes involved. It's a it's good storytelling. If nobody dies, it doesn't matter, and immortal characters yeah. aren't interesting. Entirely right. It's the stakes. Apparently, they were supposed to kill Poe Dameron off in the first episode. He was supposed to be one of those characters real early on that, that goes down, and they decided to keep him. I've read that. That would have been a great decision. It's also the case with Han Solo. Han Solo was supposed to die in Return of the Jedi, which also strikes me as that would have been a better decision to create a little bit more of the, 
I, I feel like there's a lot more emotional connection that you then have. Oh, totally. I, I will say, though, with, with this episode, mm -hmm. we have gotten to spend time with the Domino Squad. We've gotten to begin liking them. But I don't necessarily know that we've come to love them in this, at least... Sure. Speaking only for myself, I don't know that we've come to love them in the same way we loved Han Solo, or that we loved Wash in in Firefly, yeah, or 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 something like that. So, you know, usually characters that get killed have a little bit more weight to them. These guys feel like they're almost disposed of pretty quickly and kind of flippantly. Yeah, and yeah. it's not even real. Like <laughs> their buddy gets eaten by an eel, and it's like, what the hell was that? Oh, that was a giant eel. Remember the rules that I right. was telling you about? We should have followed the rules. Anyways, let's get back to work. I'm like what all right shouldn't you care about your friend whatever yeah there's something about and it happens actually another point in time the soldiers who spin things positive man if i grieve every single person that dies in the in this army i'm i'm just gonna be a puddle of grief the entire time no, that's true. And I won't be able to do my job. Some I, I don't know if that's a worthy excuse there, but I'll I'll give you that. Yeah. I, I, there's a um, Johnny Cash has a song called Drive On that he wrote after he he read a book about Vietnam where where they uh, soldiers returning had kind of told had told stories about when when people would die or anything bad would happen these soldiers would say drive on to each other as sort of a way of saying keep going we don't yeah. have time to stop but also yeah. as a as just sort of a quick phrase to express grief because you haven't got that time to just so I would I would buy that yeah famous story of uh, Stonewall Jackson that's in the Ken Burns Civil War documentary where uh, apparently like his second in command dies and uh, he wasn't told about it until a couple of hours later and he says you know where's where's general so-and-so and his and the guy next to him the orderly says well well he died on the battlefield earlier in the day and Jackson goes very commendable and then just went back to work you know oh it's God. kind of that that sort of thing <laughs> There's a famous, what is it? It's a Bill Belichick line. He says, on to Cincinnati or something like that. Like he he lost some game horrendously. It was ugly. It might have defined the whole season. The reporters are saying, so what What happened with this? Are you going to do this and that and what? And he goes, you're on to Cincinnati. <laughs> he just, we're going to play a football game. It's nothing about the past, nothing about the future. It's right now we're preparing for Cincinnati. Yeah. As I say, he, he, he drained the blood of like a baby horse and then said, on to Cincinnati. <laughs> they, that only happened twice. <laughs> well, our Domino squad is down to three, and then they gain two more. They look up, they see uh, it's Commander Cody. It's the inspection team. Cody and Rex are landing. They say, This is not good. I don't see the deck officer anywhere. These boys are sloppy. There should always be an officer on duty. Cody and Rex are not detectives. With, uh, <laughs> with right, yeah, no. Uh -uh. That Roger Roger was the first sign that they they, they don't have detective skills. You know, it I was it feels like this whole episode. It almost feels like they're a little bit out of order. Like there there's this lack of observation, this lack of preparation, this this kind of general like oh what oh oh what what do we do now? I don't know. Well, we can't get them on the radios. What's going on? I don't know. Like they just yeah. it feels like a general sloppiness. Yeah, they're trained to shoot clankers, not to think. <laughs> More education going into your uh, officers. Come on, y'all. Right, which, I mean, to be fair, they set that up at the beginning, so I don't know why I'm complaining. <laughs> Rex again. I have a bad 
feeling about Droid this. comes out dressed as a clone. Welcome to Rishi, Commander. As you can see, the outpost is operating at peak efficiency. Thank you for visiting, and have a safe trip back. But just way too much hand gesturing, yes. and, and again, like like a bunch of children in a trench coat pretending to be an adult. Like, <laughs> Something's clearly nefarious here. We need to inspect the base just the same. Uh, there is no need. Everything is fine and fully operational. And we cut to the clones below who can't connect with them on their radio, so they send up a signal flare. Cody looks back. A droid attack flare? Rex turns, shoots the disguised droid in the head. Relax. Which actually does feel fairly intimidating. Just as I thought. He takes the helmet off. Those new commando droids. That flare must have come from the survivors. And the commando droids pop up from all around them. It's an ambush. And there's one slick, real slick shot. They all start firing. Slick shot of a one of the commander droids getting hit a couple times, folding backwards, and then springing back up and firing again. Yeah, they, awesome. They have Why skills. do they have the other ones? Um, a new set of commander droids come out the, the door, and they start throwing hand grenades at the ship that Rex and Cody came in. The droids all scatter. They jump to the side, and the grenades go off, and Cody and Rex are dangling from below on wires and they descend to the moon floor. Commando droids are unable to find them. No sign of them. They must have been pulverized. Resume defensive posts. Well, that sure complicates things, Commander. No worse than that time on Tibrin. We had Jedi with us on Tibrin. They helped. Fun reminder that they commonly work with Jedi and this this episode's unique. I felt that. Yeah, you, there's a there's a missing presence. And then Rex and Cody see the Domino Squad approaching. <laughs> I like this. Rex says, "Hands above your head. Take your sunbonnets off." Uh, right. sir? Clearly wearing sunbonnets. <laughs> right. Yeah. They say they're well. not wearing helmets like they are. Clearly, they're just screwing around. <laughs> they say, "Sir," because he didn't realize he was wearing a sunbonnet. And they re reveal themselves as clones. And then the giant eel comes back out. And Rex turns and he shoots the eel in the side of the head. And it goes down. And Rex goes over and he dips his hand in the blue blood. And he looks at him and he says, The name's Rex. But you'll call me Captain or Sir. That's a, yes, you will. Yes, That's sir. a good character introduction right there. <laughs> You're not screwing around with that dude. And they straighten up. I'm Commander Cody, your new boss. And then there's introductions all around. My designation is Trooper 27-5555, sir. We call him Fives. I'm heavy. This is Echo. Where's your sergeant? Dead, sir. We're all that's left. And then here's the line for us. Looks like we got ourselves a batch of shinies, Commander. Shinies, sir? That's right. Your armor. It's shiny and new. Just like you. Walks over and puts a handprint of eel blood on Echo's chest. And this handprint will remain on Echo's armor indefinitely. And I, th I think this is a wonderful touch. And I, of all things, I really nerded out on bloody handprints because this is a this is a trope in a lot of movies. Yeah. The it means different things, and here it means something. I don't know if you have thoughts on this. You got thoughts on bloody handprints? Sure. Yeah, that's maybe the most kind of 
upsetting, badass thing ever. You show up, mm-hmm. murder something, yeah. go over and just touch its blood <laughs> and be like, you can call me sir. And then to like take that bloody hand and touch another human being with it is like, that is some messed up psychological stuff. You shouldn't fight with that guy. Don't, don't mess with Rex. Call him only sir, never call him anything <laughs> else, because if, if he does that, you can only imagine... No, I think I think a bloody handprint on a helmet or on your face, I think, serves as a billboard. Mm-hmm. It tells you literally everything you need to know about somebody, about a character and who they are and what they'll do and what they're not afraid of. Like, if you walked up, to, if you didn't know me and you walked up to me and I had a bloody handprint on my face or shirt, yes. you would absolutely be like, I'm not starting anything with that guy. Yeah. There are times where... Yeah, I have in my head like zombie movies. You'll see like a bloody handprint that's kind of streaked or something, and you're just like, okay, the rules are gone. Yeah, it's a it's a sign that the order of things has broken down. That's not necessarily what's going on here, though. Using what you were saying, the bloody handprint has so many different meanings depending on. Yeah, if if you walk into a grocery store with a bloody handprint on your face or on your chest, that communicates something. The one that came immediately to my mind was Wilson the volleyball, which is almost the absolute opposite yeah, side of the spectrum. In that, I think in that case, it's a representation of humanity, right? Like, yeah, Wilson is an inanimate object, but Tom Hanks's blood in handprint form goes on there, and I think that almost. In a sense, that's almost like making it human, mm-hmm. creating a companion. Yep. The uh, There's another big bloody handprint in Star Wars, which is at the beginning of Force Awakens, where um, Finn's oh, yeah. companion is shot, and his hand goes on his helmet and slides off. The same kind of story, though. It's communicating something. The blood in the hand, there's real power in the bloody handprint. It's communicating something big. You can't just say, oh, there's another bloody handprint on the window you know, or well, on that guy's shirt. Most people can't. I think there's probably... Right? <laughs> Captain Rex, that's how he decorated his home. <laughs> you just go in there, it's like all these like sort of oxidized brown handprints all over the wall. You like the wallpaper, kids? So, yes, sir! That's right. Because <laughs> there's an empty patch right over there. There's an image in uh, Rathacon. I don't know if you'll remember this. It's when Scotty's nephew dies, and Kirk is sitting over him, and he reaches out his hand and hits Kirk in the middle of the chest and leaves a bloody handprint yeah. on, on Kirk's chest. You'll have to go back and, and watch this. It's a good Star Trek scene. It happens at this crucial moment. There's been an explosion. It's where Scotty you know, carries his nephew into the... He carries him onto the bridge, and then they have that. They have their scene. It's the one where he says, Is the word given, Admiral? The word is given. Warp speed. And, mm-hmm. and then the kid dies. And this is the only... I, I normally... Scotty normally bugs me, but he says... What? He stayed at his post when the train needs a ran. That one, that one gets me. Are you, are you a Scotty? He's such a great character. I think it's because I watched Trekkies, which I'm sure you've seen. Oh, yeah, of course. And the the actor just bugged me. 
I'm like, oh, I see. I see who you are. I see you're very self-serving dude. I read it into Scotty now. Sure. I feel like there's just like a Scottish stubbornness to that character that's that's just like, all right, we need the whatever speed. It's always like, ah, there's absolutely no way I can do that, Captain. You can't push it. (laughs) And then you can do the thing that you've said you can't do, but just that like, out of your mind, there's no way you can do that. Push a button. All right, yeah, we got it. I love that. I guess that's true. I do love that about that character. Okay. I'm, I've, I recant. <laughs> I sold you. There's your own blood in Castaway. There's uh, Comrade's blood in Force Awakens. There's this underling's blood in Wrath of Khan. My favorite bloody handprint scene, I was thinking about this, is for, I don't know if you saw a po- uh, Flashpoint Paradox. It's a DC animated Oh, I, I know. I have I have read some of the graphic novel, but I have not seen the I've not seen it. There's a scene, it's an alternative yeah. DC timeline, yeah, where uh, Bruce Wayne gets shot instead of Tom and Martha. And Thomas Wayne is beating up the guy and Martha is trying to compress Bruce's chest for, you know, the blood from coming out of Bruce's chest. And we watch Bruce die and Martha's horrified and her hand goes up to her mouth. And she starts crying, and then she looks up, and she gets hysterical. And we already know that Tom Wayne becomes the new version of Batman, and then she pulls her hand off, and it's the Joker smile. And every and you, it, it just shocked me the first time I saw it. I was just like, ah! It's such a good move. The, the thing about the blood in the handprint is then there's the blood of your enemies, and that's actually that's some different stuff, and that's what we see here. This happens in a lot of human traditions where you kill the beast, you go and you kill the lion or you kill the bear, and that makes you a man, you know, or that makes you an adult, as it were. We talked about this with clone cadets that Shakti has the teeth of of a Star Wars bear around her headdress. Which I assume is because she went out and and killed this yeah. large animal, and, and uh, you know, a lot of warrior traditions. You know, you're wearing the lion's mane, or you know, Umbaku has the gorilla head. Oh yeah, that's a good one. But you know what I mean there. Yeah. And here you have the blood of this space eel on your on your armor, but it, he didn't kill the eel, but it's going to remain on his armor for the rest of the series. You know what I mean? Yeah. And one of the things that hit me is there's one other character in Star Wars that has this happen to them. Somebody else marks them with their kill. And it's and it's recent. It's Din Djarin. He has the mudhorn symbol put on his armor. Oh yeah. But he wasn't the one that killed the mudhorn. I mean, in essence. R- right. Does he kill it? I mean, maybe he does. Pretty heavy assist. What does he say? He says something like it wasn't an honest kill or a noble kill. What caused this damage? A mud horn. Then you have earned the mud horn as your signet. I shall craft it. I can't accept. It wasn't a noble kill. I was helped by an enemy. Why would an enemy help you in battle? It did not know it was my enemy. Because it was. I mean, yeah, he he did kill it, but but yeah, I mean, he was it it was immobilized by by the child. Yeah. Marking your armor with the symbol of this thing that was going to kill you, but someone else helped you. That's an interesting image here that I couldn't think of any other places in Star Wars where that happens, but it's pretty primary. Oh, yeah. 
anyway, the that image of maybe I don't want to call it baptism, but there's something about the those life experiences where you first see battle. I think it's a marking. Like I said, it's a billboard almost. I feel like it kind of it yep. m- makes a sends a message and a statement either to other people or to that person that the thing has marked. Yeah. Anyway, I really got into that. It's really subtle. I like that a here, lot. But went down the rabbit hole. No, I think it's I think that's fascinating. Heavy then says, "Sir, me and my batches are trained and ready. We'll take back our post, shiny or not." Rex says, "There's hope for you yet, rookie." And they climb back onto the landing pad. Rex says, Look sharp, rookies. As long as those tweezers occupy this post, our home planet of Kamino's at risk. But there's so many of them. Doesn't matter, kid. We have to retake this base. So we will retake this base. Cody says, How do you propose we get through those blast doors, Rex, old boy? I have a few ideas. By the way, okay, we need to pause and talk about D. Bradley Baker, who is the voice actor who does... All these clones. Yeah. There is something about doing a character and then doing a different character, but he's doing different characters with the same voice and just varying it slightly or giving the voice, the same voice, a very different personality. It's it's a tremendous amount of skill that's very impressive. Fun fact. Do you know where uh, Mr. Baker grew up? I do not. D. Bradley Baker is from Greeley, Colorado. No, that's so cool. Yeah. So let the listener understand. Daniel was born and raised, and I assume born <laughs> and raised yeah. in uh, Greeley. Uh, I moved to Greeley when I was twenty. I'm forty-four right now, and uh, he graduated from the lab school, which is three blocks from yeah. my house. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome! How cool! Other famous gigs he did work on. Uh, the Battle of the Five Armies doing voice work. He is the voice of Daffy Duck and the Tasmanian Devil in Space Jam, which made me laugh really hard because Space Jam is the only movie I associate with Greeley. There's, for whatever reason, there's like this underground Space Jam cult. What? And I didn't. Re- <laughs> Do you not know this? The Burroughs kids are like, are way into Space Jam. Oh, so. that's hilarious. I've heard a lot of people reference it out here in in Chicago only because of of the Jordan connection, the Michael Jordan connection. Oh, sure. He's big out here, I guess. There's a statue. Yeah. Lots to be said for for just how much professionality and energy he brings to to a lot of these very different performances and some of the best lines from this whole show are coming from the clones, the the really emotional moments. If he doesn't show up, they don't work. What's the point of all this? I mean, why? I don't know, sir. I don't think anybody knows. But I do know that someday this war is going to end. Then what? We're soldiers. What happens to us then? Dude's on point. He makes you care about every single one of these clones. Or at least want them to succeed. Yep. Yeah. Uh, We see commando droids manning the door. The clones walk up to the door. One of those orange balls on an extended eye stock looks out the door, which always terrified me as a kid also. The thing in Jabba's Palace. I always thought they were really uh, funny. Like there's something oh, about you? the reallys. Like, I remember as a little kid, like, why don't we just slap that thing to the side? Like, <laughs> it's the voice. The voice is intimidating. Goodness gracious me. Anchor. Aren't you a pinky? Yes. No, that's true. 
and how C-3PO is so like aghast by it and, and yet R2-D2 yeah. basically seems to tell it to go <laughs> go screw off. Well, that, that's the only thing that comes out of R2-D2's mouth. He's that friend. They just they bleep out all the profanities for that droid. Yeah. That's how that works. <laughs> this is, by the way, it's called a gatekeeper droid, which I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Again, one of those just simple designs in Star Wars that just brings a lot of personality to the world. But here the commando droids are speaking through it, and they say, Unit 2-6, is that you? And Rex is just standing in front of it like a boss. Roger, roger. You sound strange. Is something wrong with your vocabulator? Roger, roger. Take off your helmet. Let me see your faceplate. Roger, roger. Holds up the decapitated head of a, of a droid. This is never gonna work. Which is funny, kids. I mean, it is. I laughed. Cody's to the side. He says, this is never gonna work. But apparently it does work. Droid opens the door, looks out, he says, Whoa! Roger, roger. Looks at him just cold. Boom. <laughs> That's it. Shoots him in the head. Other clones shoot, shoot the other three droids dead, and they run into the base, and Heavy says, Permission to take point, sir. Of course, Rex says, I'm always first, kid. <laughs> they get back to the main control room. There's like 10 droids in the room, and Rex jumps in, takes the lead, shoots three of them in the face, just bang, bang, bang. And the droids start returning fire, and they hit fives in the arm. Rex shoots the gun from a droid's hand, who then pulls out one of those swords, which we saw early on. And we were saying, I sure hope that these come into play later in this battle. Oh, yeah. Rex dodges the sword twice then snaps the droid's neck. Just, It's a great little action scene. The sword is that sword that we see in uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Did you see Edge of Tomorrow? Or is it's also known Live, Die, Repeat? Uh-uh. I'm not a big Tom Cruise fan. Gosh, you treat yourself. I am not overselling this by saying it's the best science fiction movie of the last 10 years with maybe the exception, maybe the exception of Interstellar. But I've watched. Okay. I I I rewatch that movie all the time. It is phenomenal. Okay. It, it's truly phenomenal. I'll check it out. Um, what's her name? Uh, she's married to the guy in the office. Oh, Emily Blunt. Yeah, she is stellar in that movie. But she she has a sword like that. I don't actually think I've ever seen her give a bad performance. I've seen bad right? films that she's in, but she yeah. is never bad. There's some there's some moments in Edge of Tomorrow that are crushing, crushing lines. I'm going to call you at like 2 in the morning if I don't like it. <laughs> Jeff, why'd you make me watch this movie? Uh, Heavy and Echo shoot a droid at the same time. I got one! Sorry, Echo, I jumped that one. Goes like, like hell you did. And <laughs> Heavy goes, Not so tough now, are you, Sparky? And this is a first fight for the Domino Squad, and this is obviously their first droid kill. I love this screenwriting yeah. right here. This is kind of what I imagine that somebody in battle might do. You have killed something, and you're either going to be horrified that you just killed somebody, or you're going to see them as subhuman or, or you know, a, a, you know, obviously a, a robot here, and you're just like, dude, I took you down. And oh yeah, it's a, it's a great moment between those two guys. They go to the window of the control room, see Looks ships like descending. A That's why they commandeered the outpost. They're mounting a full-scale invasion. We have to warn command. Cut to Grievous's ship. Our public base is still transmitting the all-clear signal. But for some reason, our commando droids are not responding. We can leave nothing to chance. 
That base cannot be allowed to alert the Jedi that we're coming. Send down reinforcements to investigate. And they, they do some intercutting here with Grievous's ship and the Jedi ship and the base. And it just it creates this, this action and flow and energy. Those clankers sabotaged our transmitter and they hardwired the all-clear signal. It'll take time to repair. Don't have time. Look! They see the, the ships landing, large platoons of battle droids that are coming out. Well, buddy, you always said you wanted to be in the front lines. This is kind of that peak moment that's in every every battle film. You had a little bit of a taste of the action, and then you're, you're standing out there looking at the onslaught. I mean, it's the Battle of Helm's Deep. It's all of these films where it's like, here comes the thing that is meant to defeat us and that we have to fight. Are you ready? We can't protect the outpost long against that army of clankers. So the soldiers there inside, they start planning. Then we'll destroy the outpost instead. And the clones look surprised and echo the rule follower. But sir, our mission is to defend this facility at all costs. And Rex says, We have to warn the Republic about the invasion. They'll take notice when the all clear signal stops. And this is an important move because Echo knows the rules. He follows the rules. He is a rule-obsessed character, as we know. And Rex steps in with authority and he says, here's the bigger picture. Here's what this is all about. Rules don't matter here, as it were. Even the the big rule here, which is defend the space at all costs. I mean, defend the space at all costs can also mean whatever you do, make sure it doesn't fall into enemy hands. In defending it, truly defending it also sometimes maybe means you have to blow it up to keep it from being corrupted. That's right. When they stop receiving our beacon, they'll get the message something's wrong. I need every thermal detonator in the inventory. It'll take more than a few detonators to destroy this outpost. We can use the LT. This moon freezes for over half the year. We use liquid Tabana as fuel to heat the base. So now Echo's on board. Heavy, who knows weapons, according to clone cadets, says liquid Tabana. Highly explosive. Good. Bring the tanks here and prime the detonators. <laughs> yeah, that's that. I love the smell of napalm in the morning, guy. <laughs> And we are seeing hundreds of battle droids marching to the door, and behind them are, you know, a, a line of super battle droids. And so they are geared up, ready to come in. Rex then delivers, I think, one of the, I think this is the line of, for the show. All right, listen up. There's only one target of interest in this sector. Camino. It's the closest thing we clones have to a home. And today we fight for more than the Republic. Today we fight for all our brothers back home. Understood? Sir, sir yes, yes, sir! sir. This is one of those moments that I think a lot of soldiers actually get to in war movies or in, you know, in tellings of the war. I wasn't actually fighting for the country anymore. I was fighting for, for my friends who are next to me. Or here, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting for my friends who I left back home. They're not fighting for democracy and the, and the rule of the Senate at the, uh, here. If the if the Empire takes this base, it puts them at the doorstep of Camino, which is literally where they're created and made and raised. So I think it it does make it more valuable. I, I would assume. I, by no means am I a, am I a soldier. So I think it's there's a big difference between if you told me something bad is going to happen to the United States, I'd be like, all right, let's do what we can to prevent it. But if you were going to tell me something bad is going to happen to Greeley, Colorado, then I suddenly yeah. would be like, let us make sure that does not happen because everybody yeah. I care about is there. It makes it, 
I keep I feel like I've said too many times it like gives it makes the stakes real and gives you skin in the game, but that's yeah. what I think this is. It's I think that's right. You know, ninety nine is on that base. We've talked about him and sort of sort of loved that character. I mean that's that's it's literally do it for your friends. Yep. There's something about fighting for Middle Earth, but those those hobbits are fighting for the Shire. Ah, oh, that's a that's a perfect analogy. I love scenes like this where it's why are we fighting this war? Which actually is is how the Two Towers movie ends is with that monologue from Sam. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? Then he says, But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? And that's the question. That's the question for the soldier and the warrior. And Sam stoops down, picks Frodo up, and looks him in the eye and says, But there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo. And it's worth fighting for. Doesn't Aragorn have a moment like that in Return of the King when they're when he's on the horse in front of No, it's yeah, it's like that it's a ripoff from Braveheart kind of. It's yeah. he says, you know, someday we'll one day we might betray our friends, but it's not this day. It's Tolkien's version of of um Henry's St. Crispin's Day speech. Oh, that's better. From Shakespeare. Yeah. The William Wallace speech is yeah, it's about freedom. There's something good in the world, Mr. Frodo. You might live, but would you give all these days between now and then? For, for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Hell yeah. <laughs> My favorite is from Gettysburg. In Gettysburg, uh, Jeff Daniels' character gets up and he says... If you, if you survey all of the armies of world history, you'll see men fighting for land or for treasure or because they like killing. But this army that we're part of is part of is something new. We set out to set other men free. Ooh, nice. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful little image there before, before they go and fight Gettysburg. Anyway, then that's what this is. It's like, all right, let's get up. Locker room speech. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cody and Rex nod to each other. Rex begins moving the liquid Tybana into place. The rest of the clones enter the armory. There's a real quick kind of battle prep montage. And I realized watching this, it's like, this is kind of, this is a trope of a lot of movies. The We're prepping for battle. I, I In thinking about this, I watched the montage from Rocky IV. Yes. Where he's where he's in Russia training and... Yeah. and Climbing the, the mountain. Do you know that's a seven-minute montage? <laughs> it's Rocky running in waist-deep snow and yeah. 
juxtaposed by Ivan Drago and his entire team of people. Right. Everybody's doing like all these sciencey things. Shooting up with steroids. Yeah, shooting him up with steroids, <laughs> having him like having him like turn knobs on machine like stuff that looks like they could have been on the set of Star Wars actually. Like <laughs> right? a bunch of but also Rocky's like jogging around and he's helping people pick up their carriages. All stuff where I'm yes. like, how does this help you learn getting, how to box? Getting tracked by the KGB. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those right, guys yeah. in the car Just, that can't keep up with him while he's going up the snowy road. Yeah, and he takes that left turn and the car can't. But I just, the whole time I thought to myself, none of this stuff teaches you how to box. Right. Like, it's just it's just Russian people having Rocky do their chores for him. He's, like, clearing, like, boulders <laughs> out of a thing at one point, like, chopping firewood. I'm like, what is this? He's in the barn and he's, like, hanging by his ankles, yeah, and doing doing sit-ups. It's ridiculous. But in the movie, you're in it. My other favorite montage is uh, in the Karate Kid. Oh, sure. Like during the tournament? Yeah, it's before Daniel faces off with, with Tommy and, and they, they play best, literally the best song. And you just watch. I, I can't remember what the song is. What's the song? Oh, the song is called You're the Best. It's oh, You're the Best Around. Yes. Nothing's ever going to get you down. Like, there it is. And like, go, go, go YouTube this and, and look at it because... Uh, Ralph Macchio looks like he's about twelve, and everybody else that's competing in that tournament looks yeah. like they're about like they're 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 paying some child support. Like those are not <laughs> young people. Like those are not high school kids competing in this. It's a bunch of like thirty-five year old divorced dudes and and six year old Daniel Larusso. There's a couple people that you're like, I bet that guy kicked Daniel's ass yeah. in real life. Like he doesn't win with that kick to the chest. That's it. This one reminded me most of. There's a small montage in Predator. <laughs> Where again, Schwarzenegger's just kind of—he's creating kind of a a little base kill zone. He's gonna take that guy out. Yes, love those. It's very Home Alone, where you see them defending the fortress. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's Home Alone. <laughs> Did you ever watch Creed by chance? Did you see Creed One or Creed Two? No, huh? These these are worth finding. Also, music by Ludwig Göransson, who does uh, Mandalorian. Yeah, 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 they they're worthwhile if you like if you like Rockies enough to enjoy the seven minute mon- montage. Oh, absolutely! They, it's worth just looking up the montages from uh, Creed. They're both just they'll get you. They're they're emotional. Because well, that, and that's Michael B. Jordan too, isn't yep. it? That they get to yeah. He, he's that guy. That guy's such a good actor. Yeah, this isn't a spoiler. It's a slight spoiler, but you know, Rocky gets cancer in the first Creed movie, and so the montage is kind kind of uses that as part of the it, it's not rocky helping russian peasants it's michael b jordan working out while he's helping rocky with his cancer treatment anyway yeah, yeah. during the montage heavy and cody go into the armory and uh heavy says this one here is mine ha. cody says big gun doesn't make a big man really worthwhile foreshadowing there and then a droid comes to the door and says, Reinforcements reporting. Open up. Heavy opens the door with the said Gatling gun. Didn't say please. Begins firing into that droid. <laughs> Explosives are thrown and a battle ensues. Good 30 droids go down immediately. They shut the blast door. Cody again says, We can use a Jedi about now. And speaking of Jedi, we go back to the Star Destroyer and... For being detectives, another set of characters that just uh, are—they keep saying, "We're looking for Grievous. We're looking for Grievous. We're looking for Grievous." If something were wrong, Cody would contact us. 
hey, is, uh, has Cody uh, called us back yet? Yeah, it's just, l- like I said at the top of this, it just feels like they are kind of unprepared. Yeah, that's it. It goes to Grievous's ship. What is the status of the base? Uh, we've run into some difficulties. There seem to be a few clones left, sir. Then wipe them out! We can't let a few puny clones stop us! <laughs> Cut back down. The clones are firing on the outer door, which has been breached. Cody tells Rex it's time. Rex has triggered the explosives in the control room. He's trying to connect the explosives to a remote control, and he says, The handset isn't linking up with the detonator. Heavy, who knows weapons, according to clone cadets, says, I'll take care of it. It'll be fixed in no time. You guys get out of here. Just make it fast. Those droids are getting close. So all the clones leave, except Heavy, who's working on the, the bomb, and they go through that vent again to get outside. Heavy, likewise, can't get the detonator to work, and then he hears the droids approaching. And this obviously isn't good. This isn't good. There's got to be another way. And hides and droids move in and retake the command center. You got thoughts on any of that? I mean, only that it's pretty clear what it's setting up. Yeah. If we take a moment to pause, we probably know what's going to happen. It's a sacrificial moment. One of the things that I think sells this one is that Heavy starts fighting. The other clones are outside. They realize that Heavy's not with them, and they get him on the communicator. Heavy, get out of there! The remote isn't working. I'll have to detonate it manually. Hey, hold on there. Blast him! The clones outside don't like this answer. Heavy says... No use! I know what I have to do! Rex says... I don't like your tone, rookie. But Rex right. clearly cares about this other clone. And then there is a majestic, well-composed last scene. He's fighting in the hallway with his Gatling gun, and he gets shot in the arm. And it's just the, the picture of the injured man moving away from battle. He's injured, and he's trying to get to the place where he can do his, his job. That, that move in film is always one that just always grabs me. You see this in the mission if you've seen that, it's a Robert De Niro movie. Real similar image where mm-hmm. Robert De Niro has to detonate a bomb, but he's injured. And this is, it's actually an, a really important visual because we're going to see it referenced in the last episode of the arc. There's going to be another character who's kind of injured. He's, he looks like a hobbled man. And there's a there's a real connection here between how heavy looks and in a scene in Arc Trooper. So just to put a pin in that, it's a, I I wanted to put a pin in that just because it's so so beautifully done. Yeah, yeah. How the, how the how the story gets told through this arc. So heavy enters the control room. His gun jams. He throws the large weapon at the line of droids. He goes for the bomb, but he's shot in the back and he falls to the ground. Heavy, come in, come in, heavy. And then you just hear his heartbeat, and the tension is there, and then the droids speak. Do we take prisoners? They've executed a handful of people from above already in this episode, but Heavy says, I don't. Hits the bomb and it explodes. You got thoughts? That's a, that's your, that's a, I love that moment. I, it's, it's, it felt like his character, or at least what we can assume his character is from the few episodes we've seen of him, that kind of that kind of braveness and defiance in the face of your own demise mm. it really had a very strong like and i'm iron man yeah feel to me Ooh. where where he just yeah. 
very, very defiantly is like, I know exactly what's about to happen. Boom. Yep. Trying to think of other uh, images of of the bomb exploding kind of scenes. I'm sure they're real common. Uh, Terminator 2 has that one with Mm -hmm. the scientist who's holding the weight over the explosive until, until his heart goes out and it blows up. And of course, it's beautiful. It's these self-sacrificial moments. And he always did hate that place. Clones from outside, we said this earlier, make a joke. Because <laughs> when your brother dies in combat, what are you, right. you going to do? <laughs> I'm thinking of now, the, the, when we've talked about the responses of the clones to people dying, The I think it was made in 1999. There's a remake of The Jungle Book uh-huh. that... Um, Lena Headey, the woman who plays Cersei Lannister, is in, and okay. uh, and uh, they watch someone die. I can't remember. How, it's pretty awful. It's in the jungle. Something, something pretty horrible happens to him, and everybody's kind of standing there in this moment of tension, and Lena Headey's character says, oh, well, let's not get discouraged by every little thing, and then just walks off into the jungle, and everybody else is like, wow. <laughs> so this is, this is one of those moments. <laughs> Feeling repressed That's, character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my father says that as a joke all the time now. Like something will happen, and and people will need to think of a response. And my dad just goes, "Well, let's not get discouraged by every little thing. <laughs> we just keep moving." <laughs> it's on to Cincinnati, <laughs> right? the The thing that's not said here is that uh, Heavy hated that place, but he loved his family on Camino, and that's really what the, that's about. Yeah. A lot of sacrificial deaths in uh, Clone Wars, which we'll see. And uh, this is a good one. Well played. Cut to Yularen on the Star Destroyer. He says, The Oculus signal has been disabled. The Rishi base has stopped transmitting. Anakin goes, Grievous. <laughs> Obi-Wan says, Let's get the fleet underway. Cut to Grievous' ship. Grievous. I didn't tell them to blow up the station. But isn't it good that the base is destroyed? Idiots. Doesn't Star Destroyers emerge from hyperspace and Grievous says, Public fleet, we're outgunned. Get us out of here. And then the celebration begins on the moon's surface. We've got those tinnies on the run. Thanks to Heavy. Gunships. Getting off this crater, boys. Gunships descend. Great sound effects. My, uh, I'm sure I've said this before. That I just love the sound design of these ships because they're they're hel- they're Star Wars helicopters but they don't sound like helicopters but they still have that feel and it's that scene that again in a, is in a lot of films of the men who have been fighting and it's following a battle and they're being rescued by the helicopters do you do you have any that come to mind I've I've, ref- I've referenced it a couple times and I I rewatched it about a week ago so it's um the best one that I can think of right now is Dunkirk the yeah. the yeah, yeah. everything has been blown up every like there's there's almost no chance you feel like you're gonna make it so many people have died or sacrificed themselves and then there's just that music and sound and rush of of elation when mm-hmm. when the the well I guess in this in the case of Dunkirk it's boats but yeah 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 yes I I will rewatch the last five minutes of that movie frequently just just gorgeous Quentin Tarantino said that's the best movie of the 2010s. Dunkirk. Dunkirk, that was his number one. Yeah, I'll give him that. The movies that came to my mind were Platoon has that kind of scene. 
of being rescued by the helicopters. And I suppose Predator has that kind of scene. Yeah. Of all things, you know what this, both the beginning and the end of this episode may make me think of is uh, Lord of the Flies. There's um, great symbolism throughout, but that's one of those, I think you have to be a little older to really appreciate it. You shouldn't read it in sixth grade. Yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> I think as when I, I've read it twice, and the 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 first time was in sixth grade, and and that that felt um, inappropriate for a number of reasons. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like handing Romeo and Juliet out to ninth graders, saying, you know what, you when you don't get what you want from your family, there here's here's one <laughs> option for you. <laughs> go go at, go talk to a clergyman, and he'll tell you to kill yourself. <laughs> That's it. There's three Shakespeare plays where a priest suggests that someone <laughs> pretend to kill themselves. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> you, Jeff, you pastor a church. How many young people have you told, you know what, make your parents think you killed yourself? It didn't work the first time, so I, I stopped giving that <laughs> advice. <laughs> <laughs> we got to the deck. <laughs> got to the deck of a space cruiser. Obi-Wan says, On behalf of the Republic, we thank you for your valiant service, and we honor your comrade's sacrifice. Your new unit is lucky to have you. I'd be proud to fight beside you anytime, anywhere. They are given medals. Again, second time in uh, this arc where they've received medals. But there's an invitation here to fight in the elite core i'd be happy i'd be proud to fight beside you anytime is kind of like a do consider my special unit which anakin oversees the 501st which uh, which we've talked about mm -hmm. and rex follow will is going to follow up on his leader's words interesting thing here though to me is that anakin and obi-wan bow and i don't know if you noticed that but i thought that that was a good touch i actually didn't there's um the thing it, made, it reminded me of, again, is from Lord of the Rings, where the hobbits bow to Aragorn, and he says, no, my friends, you don't, you bow to no one. And then the powerful, the mighty, they're the ones who bow to these hobbits who have oh, yeah. done the hard work. I didn't even notice that. It's, it's, a, it's a good little touch. You were talking about it earlier in terms of the goodness that we see on the Republic side is often expressed in the humanizing of sure. the characters. These are clones who are dispensed. Uh, what was, what's the Stallone word? <laughs> they're the expendables. They're expendable. <laughs> Lama Sue in this arc thinks that the uh, clones are expendable. Yeah. These clones in particular, the ones that are here are, are expendable. You, ha you Jedi show too much compassion. But here, you know, arguably the most important Jedi on the front lines are bowing to them as a sign of honor. Yeah, no, there's repeatedly, I like that repeatedly that happens. Yeah, it's a good image there. I, I mean, that's, that's just, uh, here's, here's how it's done. Mm -hmm. There's something in our culture that is lacking on this front. The affirmation of human goodness, nobility in, in the symbols that we publicly em embrace and elevate. Mm -hmm. You know, cable news isn't filled with with that stuff. Like I've, uh, if you uh, if you YouTube some of the presentations of uh, Medal of Honor um, ceremonies, those things will crush you. 
they're just oh absolutely you have you have the president of the united states before a packed room saying this is what joe did and joe is just standing there straight in his uniform hearing it and then the president comes gives him a medal shakes his hand that's that's some good stuff oh yeah god yeah congratulations you're not shinies anymore with all due respect sir we failed our mission we don't deserve this honor. Echo still thinks this was about defending the base. Cody. No. If it weren't for you, the Republic wouldn't have learned of the Separatist invasion until it was too late. And this sets up the episode, uh, the last episode of the arc, because we know Ventress is already on Kamino preparing that invasion. So there's, a, there's knowledge of the invasion. They're setting that up. And Rex ends by saying, You showed me something today. You're exactly the kind of men I need in the 501st. Sir! Yes, sir! And then he dips his hands in a bunch of blood and starts <laughs> high-fiving everybody. <laughs> this is how it's done, y'all. What is this guy's deal? <laughs> you want to know what's up next? Of course. Well, you will know this, Daniel. The Star Wars binge is an edit. We are editing the Star Wars canon, and we're taking some license with moving some stuff around. And next week is going to be one of those places where we are moving something from near the end of the Clone Wars to near the front. But the issues that it brings up are really important, and we don't want to save them to the end. We want them to just color all of the binge. So one of them is the fact that Dooku is the one who's responsible for the creation of the clones, and we want the Jedi to know this early on. And we want it to add both to their state of confusion, and we want the Jedi Council in particular to, to appear like it has mixed motives and even has to wrestle with principles and can come across uh, untrustworthy at times, specifically to Anakin. Anakin can't flip on a dime. It can't be that he's just part of the team. He's part of the team. He's part of the team. You didn't give me a job promotion. I'm going to, I'm going to kill younglings. That can't work. Right. It needs to be the case that the Jedi council doesn't have his full confidence. And this episode sets up some stuff like that. It needs to be the case that Anakin's story has those images where he is wrestling with anger, he's wrestling with fear, and he's wrestling with trust of the Order. And uh, and so that's why we're going to move this episode forward. We also think it's important to establish the relationship with Dooku and Darth Sidious. In the Clone Wars TV series, you'll know this, uh, Sidious doesn't actually really appear till the very, very end. And we think it's actually valuable to see that Dooku is controlled and deeply fearful is a slave like vader is a slave to sidious and there's there's some great imagery that we we see in this so we're gonna pull out uh one of the last episodes it's called the lost ones this is season six episode 10 and uh we're gonna walk through this also next week we're gonna be joined by one of my favorite podcasters one tj wilson's gonna join us Ooh, fun tj is a expert in personality typing and uh, psychology and, and may have something to say about some of the characters. And he also is a Palpatine fan. Also just a, you want to talk about like a pop culture enthusiast guru, like what, like TJ is also like <laughs> truth. That guy's good at that stuff. So whenever we can get him, we we're going to get him on. So any last thoughts? Uh, no, I'm, I think we did it. Bang. Hey, as with all podcasts, this one will only survive if you share it with passion to friends who love a galaxy far, far away. 
You can find The Binge List online, and you can share your thoughts with us on Twitter if you want. The music here is by Ludwig Gorenson, Samuel Kim, John Williams, and the Kevin Kiner. You can obviously catch all of these episodes on Disney+, and all audio is the property of Lucasfilm. Next week, we're on to the lost ones. He's Daniel Mevershed. He's the brave, sweetheart. <laughs> I'm Jeff Cook. But you'll call me Captain or Sir. Sir, yes, sir. These are all Star Wars quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I had a few. <laughs> this is incredible. Boring conversation anyway. You do have your moments, not many of them, but you do have them. All right, Jeff, you're all clear. Don't get cocky. I shall redouble my efforts. I hope so, Commander, for your sake. <laughs> See, we or we could just stick with this is the way. <laughs> this is the way. This, this is the way. This is the way.